We continue our study this morning looking at the life of David, just some snapshots through the book of First and Second Samuel. And we see something this morning, we see something about the centrality, something that's at the center of David's life. Shh. Every four years as a, as a country, we go through an inauguration, inaugurating a new president. And the scene is, you know, one of pomp and circumstance and so on. Uh, but it's, it's very symbolic in what the, what the scene is portraying, and that you have the President of the United States being sworn in by uh, a justice from the Supreme Court, but doing so on the back of the Capitol building, overlooking uh, the, the mall there. And it's significant because it's symbolizing that what's at the center of this country is the voice of the people, that the President is elected by the voice of the people. And that the justices are upholding the laws that are, that are, that are, that are approved and, and, and ratified by the voice of the people. So the people are what are supposed to be at the center of this country. But for David, as David has now, as we'll see in our text here this morning, he's no longer just been anointed to be king. He's actually taken the throne. And one of his first acts is to bring the ark of God to the center of Jerusalem, to bring it to the center of the city, to bring it to the center of what Israel is doing. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. But to tell the story, I'm going to read us some excerpts starting in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So I'll call them out. Uh, if you'd like to write them down, if not, you can, you can just listen and hear the story. So 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 5 to 11 says, As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought And Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God... They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God, brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen down on his face before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. 
Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Chapter 6, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Skip down to verse 7 and 8. They're sending the, the ark back. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never been a yoke, and the yoke, uh, the cows to the uh, yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put a box at its sides of the gold figures, which you return to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go on its way, and watch. Seven verses one to two. And the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim. A long time passed, some 20 years. And all is the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now our text this morning. The ark's been sitting there for 20 years. 2 Samuel chapter 6, 1 to 15. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the cart. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God to take hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs of him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of God had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all his house, the house of Israel, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you've come to us in Jesus Christ and that you've sent the Spirit to live in us and to guide us into all truth. We pray that the Spirit would come on us fresh now and illuminate this text to us. We pray that the Spirit would fall on me as I preach the Word of God. 
We pray that you'd be glorified and magnified and we would see that we need the presence of God, the kavod of God, the glory of God in our lives, just as David did. We ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen. So three points this morning. The need, the terror, the hope. The need of the ark, the terror of the ark, the hope of the ark. The need, the terror, the hope. So we've been following the rise of David to the throne as the rightful king of Israel. And for the last few weeks, we were looking at David as the promised king, still in Saul's courts. But now, as we're continuing on in our study here, we're we're skipping forward to 2 Samuel 6. And David is not just the promised king anymore, but he's actually been anointed. And he is the king. Saul and his sons have died, and in the previous chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 5, David was anointed king at Hebron. And the first thing he does, immediately after being anointed king, he's thrust into battle against the Philistines, and he defeats the Philistines. So his first act, after this victory, is to go bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now the word here for uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, it just means a box. It's just a box. And the box is about four feet long, and it's about two and a half feet wide and two and a half, two and a half feet tall. If you've got an ESV study Bible, there's, a, there's an artistic rendering at Exodus 25. And this box was made of, it's made of wood, made of Achaia wood, and it's overlaid with gold. And inside of the ark was the law of God. Two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And on top of that was this gold top that, that, that fit the top of the ark, and that was called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, there are these two gold cherubim whose wings are connected together. It's one piece of gold that are connecting these two cherubim, and their faces are looking downward at the mercy seat in this reverent awe sort of perspective, sort of stance. And the priests received instructions in places like Exodus 25 and Numbers 4 on how to deal with the ark. And in Numbers 4, they're told to not look at it and to not touch it. To not look at it and to not touch it. And and third, those that do approach it must be Levites. So whenever it needed to be transported or moved, it was covered with a goat skin. It was laid out for us in Numbers chapter 4. And on the corners of it, there were these rings. There was a ring on each corner, four rings. And poles would, be, would slide through there, and they would pick it up. And it would be covered with this goatskin so they wouldn't look at it, and they wouldn't touch it. Don't look, don't touch. Sounds like dating advice for young men. The reason that this it was viewed with such awe and reverence is because the glory of God dwelled above the ark. The Shekinah glory of God. The presence of God. We know that God is omnipresent, that his presence covers the entire universe like the waters cover the sea, but God does choose to dwell uniquely in specific times and places. And he chose for his presence to be uniquely known over the presence of the ark. The magnitude of God, the weightiness of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God, the essence of who God is, is dwelling over top of this ark. And this ark, 
was the only piece of furniture that was in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is the most holy place in their tabernacle. And this ark was the only thing in that room. Because God's glory uniquely dwelled on top of this ark. But the ark has been gone for a long time. As we've tried to read through the story, um, Hopney and Phineas, they, they, they treated the, the ark as, as a good luck charm of sorts. And they said, let's bring the ark with us when we go out to battle. And they bring the ark out to battle with the Philistines, and they're completely slaughtered. It says 30,000 people died. And the Philistines then take the ark, and they go, okay, we'll take this gold box, that's, that's great. And they put it in their temple. And when they put it in their temple, they wake up in the morning and, and, and their, their, their idol has fallen flat on its face. And so they do it the next night and it falls flat on its face again. And it's broken into pieces this time. So then they, they send it off to another place and they, they send it to this place called Beth Shemesh. And when it's in Beth Shemesh, it, there's, 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 there's a plague and there's locusts and all sorts of stuff that happen. So they say, let's get this thing out of here. We don't need this anymore. So they, they build a cart they offer this offering of sorts. They put it on the cart and they just send it over the hill. It's like they, they just smack the cow on, its, on the backside and say, get on out. Get on now. Get. So it goes and it, and it comes to uh, these men at Kirith uh, Jerem. And these guys, when they, the ark comes to them, they celebrate and they open it up to see what's inside of it and 70 people die. So they decide, okay, this thing just needs to stay in Abinadab's house and let's just leave it. And it's been just a few miles away from Jerusalem for the last 20 years. Saul has nothing to do with it. He just leaves it at Abinadab's house. But not David. Because David's God's king. And David knows that the center of his kingdom, the center of Israel, the center of Jerusalem is going to be the presence and the glory of God. David is not like the other Near Eastern kings who made themselves the center of their kingdom. He's not like Nebuchadnezzar who makes a massive statue of himself. God's anointed God's king intends to bring God to the center. Worship of God, enjoyment of God, reverence for God, desire for God are to be central to Israel. But as we've seen, the desire for the presence of the Lord is attended by certain dangers. Let's look at two dangers. The danger is to seek the presence of God for expedient purposes. The danger is to seek the presence of God for expedient purposes. And let's look at two possible ways that happens, and that can be publicly and that can be privately. Listen to what Dale Ralph Davis says. He's a commentator on 2 Samuel. That's what he says about a, a public danger. He says, do you see what 2 Samuel 6 is saying in light of 2 Samuel 5? 2 Samuel 5 is the defeat of the Philistines. It's not saying that whipping the Philistines doesn't matter. But it does imply that God's people are not sustained merely by crises. They do not thrive by whooping on the Philistines, but by seeking God's face. 
The evangelical church easily loses sight of this. We can always dredge up more adrenaline because of the latest ethical or social or cultural or political emergency. He says, crisis may stimulate us to action, but it can never sustain our very lives. He says, we can't ignore the enemies outside the city of God, but we must never be absorbed by them. The question is not who is against us, but the question should always be who is among us. I found this to be particularly insightful given the cultural milieu that we find ourselves in. We see politicians do it all the time to use the name of God or to use Christianity in an expedient kind of purpose as a, as a way, to, as a way to, 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 to conjure votes and support and so on. They're, they don't really desire God to be the center of things. They desire to use God in an expedient sort of fashion. And the other thing that I think Davis is saying here, he says, the question is not who is against us, but who is among us. It's a great insight that we can't simply be marked by what we are against. Living in such a rampantly secular age, when cultural shifts have happened so dramatically, it can be very easy for us to sort of be on our heels and be about what we're against. But as the church moves forward in a post-Christian age, in a radically secular age, the need to be prophetic means the need to sort of put that stuff aside, to be about what we're about. It can be a dangerous political move that can equate making America great again and bringing prayer back to our classrooms, to equate those two things. That's an expedient sort of view of God. Second danger, it's more personal to us, is that David's act here is intensely personal. He brings the presence of God to the center of Israel because he needs it in the center of his own life. He needs it in the center of his own life. I remember back when Vanessa and I lived in Monterey, I, uh, I, had, a, I had a friend that, that, that we, we began to take to church and we're reaching out to and so on. And I find out that he's the son of the psychology professor at the, at the community college that I was going to. And I remember having this conversation with this psychology professor, inviting him to come to church. And he said, oh, no, I, I, don't, want anything, I don't want anything to do with that, but I think it's wonderful, and I want my children to be exposed to it themselves. Because there's this desire to use the presence of God in a way um, that's expedient, even on a personal kind of level. So what does that look like for us? My friends, it simply means that we cannot transmit to our children something that is not our own. We can't bring the presence of God, the glory of God, the weightiness of God into our homes for any other reason except that we know that we intensely need it ourselves first. We cannot transmit to our children what is not first our own. Oftentimes, far more is caught than taught. And I knew this as a teenager myself. I remember, I can almost remember almost to the day, I remember the exact era of my life when I was a teenager, when I realized, when that shift took place in my mind, when I realized that my parents were not doing all this stuff because it meant something to them radically and personally. And I lost respect for them because I knew that they just were trying to make me be something and want me to be something that they never were themselves. They had no desire of it within themselves. And completely lost respect. Bringing 
the presence of God, bringing the glory of God into the center of your life has got to be a radically personal intention because you cannot give to somebody else what is not already first your own. David did not make the politically expedient move. David made the intensely personal move because he knew that he needed the ark at the center of his life. One of the ways that we know this is because David is the one that penned for us Psalm 27. Verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's life is going to be marked by crisis, loss, tragedy, his own mistakes, his own failures, his own pains. Far more than I dare suggest any of us will go through. And he knew that at the beginning of things, he had to bring the ark of God into the center of his own life. All that he had going on as the king of Israel, as the failing father, as the failing king at times, all he prayed is he said, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. So I was thinking about this text and meditating on this. I began to scan just through my mind my own prayers of the last six months and to think about what, 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 do I, what do I pray for the most? In the midst of, of, the, of the church merge and the of relational problems in the church, in the midst of unbelief happening in the church and all the pain of that, when I think about my wife, when I think about my kids, when I think about recovering from this miscarriage, I think, what, what have my prayers been consumed with? Have my prayers been one thing I ask for God? That I would dwell in your house forever. That I would gaze upon your beauty and your glory all the days of my life. It's one thing to know that God loves you objectively. But it's altogether another thing to know it personally. Look, we're all prone to getting down when we're snubbed. We're all prone to losing sleep over anxiety. We know God's in control objectively. We know that God is sovereign, that he means all things for our good, that not a hair can even fall from our head apart from his perfect will. We know it objectively, but it so often doesn't trickle down to our own hearts. It's because we know the glory of God, we know it objectively, but the glory of God hasn't been weighted down on our hearts. And I know, I know this happens to you because it happens to me. David knew that he needed the presence of God, just like we do. We need the majesty, the glory, the weight of who God is to not just be known objectively in our minds, but for to address our fears, our insecurities, our failings, our shortcomings. Which leads us to the problem, point two. 
the terror of the ark. <laughs> because the presence of God is marked by something pretty, pretty terrifying. As we said, there's the, the ark so far in, in, the, in Samuel has, it's kind of always uh, attended to with, with tragedy. Whether it's with Hopni and Phineas, whether it's where plagues would break out in, in, in Philistine towns, whether it's uh, uh, Dagon falling down or, or the men at Beth Shemesh dying. Or now this scene. This scene with Uzzah. 2 Samuel 6, verse 6, Uzzah put out his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. Imagine this scene. There's there's victory in war. There's there's great celebration. The the two verses before it says that all of the house of Israel, they were worshiping with all their might. We know that 30,000 people are, are coming out from Abinadab's house. It is quite the scene. 30,000 people worshiping with all their might. The ark of God is coming back to the city of God, the city of David. And this guy Uzzah reaches out his hand and strikes, God strikes him dead. It must have been a terrifying scene. People screaming, potentially, I don't know. But it was an intense scene. And the result... The result is that David is angry and, he, and he's afraid. He's angry and he's afraid and he says, take the ark and, and put it in the house of Obed-Edom. Like, this is a massive, massive failure. I assume, okay, by the way, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, which means that he was, he was a Philistine. He put, the house, he put the ark in the house of a Philistine. I would assume David thought, okay, I, I don't know what to do. Every time this ark comes on the scene, something intensely terrifying happens. People die. But I know I need it at the center of my life. And stuff like this, stuff like this is why I, I hear people, you know, they, don't, they can't believe the Bible. It's like, see there, God is acting in this sort of trite kind of fashion. It sounds unfair. Even my kids this week, as we were reading this text and talking about it, said, well, wasn't it just an accident? So I gave them this example. I said, if you, you know the place in Silver, in, in Silver Falls, right up the parking lot, and you can walk to the very end at the top of that, top of that waterfall, and you can, you can look down and see all the way to that pool at the bottom? Or if you've ever climbed to the top of the Empire State Building and, and, and stood on the edge? Or if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and you've walked up to a rail right on the edge of the rim? If we said that someone accidentally fell there, we would say, because they didn't revere it. They didn't revere it. Look, we're told. We're told how to transport this cart. We're told it's to be, car- it's to be covered and carried on poles by Levites. Uzzah and Ahio are not Levites. They likely failed all three. Doesn't say that it wasn't covered, but we know that they were carrying it on a new cart. Where'd they learn that? From the Philistines. The Philistines were the ones that put it on a cart and sent it over the hill. By the way, this guy Uzzah had likely been around the ark his whole life. He grew up in the house of Abinadab. He grew up in the in sort of the in, in, in being around this this ark his whole life, and he has no reverence for it. 
He has no respect for it. One objection could say, see, that's, that's exactly... That's exactly what I thought about Christianity. He didn't follow the rules exactly to the T, so God strikes him dead. Isn't it a natural instinct to, to reach and to try to grab something like that? And so the two responses are the religious and the irreligious response. The religious response says, yep, that's what I thought. Unless I do everything perfectly and exactly right, God's never going to bless me. And the irreligious thing, it says, see, that's exactly what I thought. This God can't be trusted. I don't want anything to do with Christianity, and I reject it. But what we need to see in Uzzah is this is a condition of his heart. Why was he struck down there and then? I mean, they likely picked up the ark and put it onto the cart. He likely had looked at it, if he clearly doesn't revere it, he likely looked at it those 20 years why this incident? Why, why now? Because it's not like the ark has kind of like this electric fence aura about it, where it's kind of like, zip. Well, we need to answer, what do these, to answer that question, why Uzzah, why now? We need to remember what these rules and statutes and regulations teach us in Exodus 25 and Numbers 4. They teach us first to revere God. But second, they teach us something else too. Because all the other Near Eastern artifacts, there was, there was the desire and there was, it, was, it, was, it was granted to, 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 to go up and to rub it and to touch it and to, and to flatter it and to throw money at it and so on and so forth. But the God of the Bible says, relate to me completely differently. The God of the Bible says uh, that, that this, this ark is now untouchable. The God of the Bible is saying that there is a great gap, that there is a great chasm between us and him. And he's saying the only way that you can actually approach the ark is through an altar. The only way to approach the ark of God is through an altar because there must be blood and sacrifice and death for us to approach God. There must be atonement for us to touch God and to come near to him and close to him and to have his presence around us. And so in a sense, you could say Uzzah completely rejected all of that. He rejects even, you could say, the essence of the gospel, that we can come to God on our own terms. What's the instinct of Uzzah? The instinct of Uzzah is that the ground is dirty. The ark shouldn't touch the ground. The instinct of Uzzah isn't, I'm a sinner, There's far more filth and dirt and corruption in me than is on this dirt. This dirt is just dirt. It does its job. But me, the corruption of my own heart, the wickedness of me, far be it from me to reach out and touch the ark. He didn't see it. He saw the dirt as far more dirty than he. When the opposite was the actual truth. Eugene Peterson in his commentary says that this attitude towards God is lethal. That Uzzah's attitude towards God is lethal. And he suggests two reasons. Why Uzzah? Why now? The first one is that because he died because of the habit of the heart. That this was his habit of how he was going to forever approach God. 
He was never going to see the need for the altar, never going to see the need for sacrifice, never saw himself as the one that was inwardly corrupt and dirty and in need of forgiveness and in need of covering. Didn't see the gap between him and God. And the second reason that Peterson suggests is because God was trying to wake up the king. Why Uzzah? Why now? Because God was trying to wake up the king. Uzzah thought he could manage God. Uzzah thought that he could manage God. And Peterson says that too often we either do it through religion or behavior, but we somehow try to manage God and put God into our debt. And Peter says that that's lethal because it will ultimately kill you. Because that mindset says that if things go well, if things go well in my life, it'll make us cold, proud. But if things go bad in our life, we'll think that God owed us and he failed us and he didn't keep up his side of the bargain. It's lethal to deal with God this way. God is not to be trifled with. There's some places in the New Testament that that would, would show us the character and the heart of God in a, very similar, in a very similar way. I think of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, where there's not a reverence, a fear of God. Or I think of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight to 31. It says, this is when, when Paul's giving us instructions for the Lord's Supper. He says, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Do you realize the weighty words that the apostle is giving us here? When he says, not discerning the body... Okay, discerning the body would be to discern, he's not talking about, I don't think he's exclusively talking about his own body, he's talking about the body politic. He's talking about the others around him without discerning the body. If we don't discern the body, before we take this cup, he says we can drink judgment on ourselves and some of them in the congregation are sick and ill because of this and some of them have even died because they're dealing with God in a trite sort of Way Because the very thing that they're holding in their hand is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ poured out of the cross for them on their behalf. They're holding out forgiveness of sin, right standing with God, reconciliation with the triune God. And if there's beefs that they have with others in the congregation, if their hearts are hard towards other people, if they can't forgive other people, They're a very antithesis to the meal that they're partaking in. And God's saying, it's Paul's saying, it's the height of hypocrisy. And he's saying, some of you are actually sick. Have you ever thought that your sickness, that your illness, that the reason that you're sick right now could be because you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart? That's what this text says. That God is to not be trifled with. God is to not be dealt with on our own terms. 
But if we proclaim the Lord's death by partaking of those elements until he comes again, then it stands to reason that our, we understand the nature of the gospel, then we understand what the nature of the gospel means horizontally as well. There's a remarkable place in Mark 11.25 that stands as a strong rebuke to me always. Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also in, who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And whenever, standing, whenever you stand praying, forgive is a command. It's an imperative. It doesn't say, and whenever you stand praying, when you finally feel like it, forgive. It means that forgiveness is an act of the will. Of course it's painful. The whole point of forgiveness, the whole point of atonement, which I'm going to get to in a moment, which I'm kind of getting my gospel reveal right now. But the whole point is that sacrifice, is that forgiveness requires taking pain on yourself. That's the whole point. Of course it hurts. Forgiveness is is saying, I am no longer going to harbor the resentful feelings I have towards this other person. Instead, I'm willing to bear some of them myself. Which leads us to point three, the hope of the ark. The hope of the ark. And the ark gives us two things. It gives us the problem, but it also gives us the provision. The problem and the provision. The problem, step one, how do we get the hope of the ark? How do you and I get the hope of the presence of God in our lives? First step is the problem, which we see from David in verses eight and nine. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? That's step one. Is acknowledging there's this massive problem. There's this massive chasm between you and God. You know you need it in your life, but it's so deadly in a sense. It's so terrifying in a sense That every other time the ark has come on the scene, it's broke out in sort of this tragic sort of way. So you go, Lord, God, how is this, how can can this, this, this presence, this glory that I need ever come to me? That's step one. And that's, 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 the ark is a picture of the gospel. The ark is a picture of the gospel because The gospel says, and and Paul says to us in Romans, that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. No one understands. All have gone their own way. And the ark is not, the ark is indiscriminate here too. Because in chapter 5, it says that the ark bursts forth on the Philistines, right? And in chapter 6, it says that the ark bursts forth on someone who's considered an insider, It's indiscriminate. It says everyone's a sinner. Y'all are sinners. But it provides the provision. Verse 12. Verse 11 and 12. And the the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed Edom and all his house. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark. So David went and brought up the ark of God for the house of Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Look, on top of the ark is the mercy seat. 
And the mercy seat says that there must be death, sacrifice, blood, atonement to enter into the presence of God. But the mercy seat is built into the ark. The mercy seat's not an afterthought. The mercy seat's not something that, that, is just, that was used from time to time. The whole point is that the presence of God needs to be approached, and it can only be approached through the altar, through mercy and sacrifice. And so David finds the provision, the provision for what he needs is in the ark itself. My friends, the only way that we can enter into the presence of God now is through an altar. And the altar that we have is the man Jesus Christ himself. He is the bridge that bridges the chasm, the gap between us and God. And he shows us the problem and he is the provision. The problem is that your sin, your life was worthy of the wrath of God on the cross against his own son. But the provision is there too. That all who repent and trust and turn in faith and trust to him are forgiven, are welcomed in, are brought back into the presence of God. And the glory of God can now come back down into our lives, into the center of our lives, through the altar, through the God-man, Jesus Christ. In him we have all the provision that we need. And we, like David, can have the joy that David has, the joy of embracing that provision, where he sings and in rejoicing goes into the city. My friends, all of our lives are constantly in need of this kind of provision. We need the altar of God ever before us. The altar of God in the man Jesus Christ ever before us because we need the glory of God in our lives all the time. And those two mingle and those two meet perfectly in Jesus. Listen to how Paul says it in closing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the bridge and he is the very weightiness, the very glory that we need. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've come to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we've been brought in, welcomed back, Help us, Lord. Help us to lay hold of it by faith. That the provision of the cross would be our lifeblood and that now the glory of God in the man Jesus Christ can also flood our lives in a radical and powerful way. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name, amen. We come now to celebrate this sacrament. We've been talking about sacraments today in a catechism. We mentioned it today uh, in the sermon And so let me just read these words that I quoted. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Let's just take a moment to consider how the Holy Spirit would use these words.
Amen. The table's open for all who have repented of their sins, been baptized, and, and looked to Jesus alone for uh, the forgiveness of sins. If that describes you and you're visiting us from another congregation, you're welcome to partake of the elements with us. You can come up row by row and then take the elements back to your seat, and we will partake uh, corporately.